You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Um, if I could invite you to turn to John chapter 7, we'll be reading from verses 1 to 39. If you have access to a pew Bible or, or an aisle Bible, because we don't have pews, it's on page 743. Reading from verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival, I am not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? And Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me. 
and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am going with I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to be the one who with the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is God's word. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks, Adam. Uh, If you don't know me, my name's Aaron. And I'm one of the pastors here at, at DPC. If you don't know me, I'd love to meet you after church. I have a vision impairment, which sometimes means I have s- trouble spotting new people in this exceptionally well-lit uh, space. Uh, and so if you're new and you're brave enough, I'd love it if you'd come and say hi to me. Uh, if you uh, find it helpful to have an outline for a sermon, uh, you can find that on the welcome card. It'd be great if you have John chapter 7 open uh, to follow along with what we're going to say Uh, Let's pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you and praise you uh, that you want us to know you and so you speak to us in your word. Uh, Father, we long this day by the power of your spirit to have our eyes opened, uh, perhaps for the first time, uh, perhaps uh, for the thousandth time, uh, to see the glory of who your son, our Lord Jesus, is. And so we pray that you might do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what it is that shapes how you show yourself to others. Perhaps you're even here for the first time today. You're in a public occasion. What is it that shapes how you reveal yourself to other people, how you show yourself to others? I would say that for me, for most of my life, maybe it's a little bit different these days, But for most of my life, it's been whatever it takes to get the approval of others. If I knew that saying certain things or doing certain things or acting in a certain way or wearing certain things, if I knew that any of those things was going to help me to get the approval of others, then that's what I would do. That's how I would show myself to others, how I would reveal myself in public. So what about you? What is it that shapes how you show yourself to others, how you reveal yourself to others? 
Uh, Today's passage in John chapter 7, I want to suggest, is all about how Jesus shows himself to others, how he reveals himself in public. And ironically, uh, we see in this passage that Jesus is also driven by approval, which is a bit strange. He's not driven by an ungodly desire to get the approval of other people, no matter what the cost. No, that's not Jesus. But he is driven by a godly desire to always get his father's approval. In fact, my summary of today's passage is that Jesus publicly shows himself to be the son who always does what pleases his father. He publicly shows himself to be the son who always does what pleases his father. He does what pleases his father in four main ways in this passage. You can see them in the sermon outline. Uh, The first, in verses 1 to 13, is that Jesus publicly shows himself to be the son who always does the will of his father. So take a look at verse 1 in this passage. Uh, If you're not familiar with the term verse, that's just the little numbers. right? At the very start of the passage, you'll see a number 1. That's verse 1. John says, after this, Jesus continued to go about in Galilee. Uh, He didn't want to go about in Judea uh, because uh, the Jewish leaders there uh, were looking for a way to kill him. Uh, If you haven't been with us as we've journeyed through John's Gospel, you might not know that this goes back to chapter 5, verse 18 in John's Gospel. Jesus healed a paralysed man in the first part of John chapter 5. And then he said to the Jewish leaders, the reason why I did that on the Sabbath uh, was that I'm always at work, just as my father's always at work. Uh, The Jewish leaders realised that in saying this, Jesus was claiming to be God, God himself in the flesh. Uh, They thought that's that's the height of blasphemy. And so we were told there, from that point on, they wanted to kill Jesus. That's no surprise to Jesus. He knows that the Jewish leaders down in Judea want to kill him. So he's been going about his ministry up north in Galilee. But take a look in verse 2. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near or came near. So here we are on John's kind of journey through the Jewish religious calendar. If you scan back to the start of John chapter 6, you'll see there John told us that Jesus fed the thousands of people in the wilderness. He fed them when it was near the Passover. That's about April or May. And now we're fast forwarded in John chapter 7. We're in September or October what was known as the Feast of Tabernacles. A couple of Bible verses you can look up later on if you want. Exodus chapter 23, verse 16. Exodus 23, verse 16. This is when God first instituted this festival, this Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, This is what God said. Uh, He said, where are I finding my notes? There it is. Celebrate the festival of ingathering uh, at the end of the year when you gather in uh, your crops from the field. That's Exodus 23, verse 16. Uh, And then in the book of Leviticus, uh, there's a bit more detail about this festival. Leviticus uh, Leviticus 23, verses 33 to 36. Leviticus 23, from verse 33. The Lord said to Moses, uh, Say to the Israelites on the 15th day of the seventh month, uh, the Lord, um, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, celebrate uh, the Lord's Festival of Tabernacles. That's when it begins, uh, and it lasts for seven days. Uh, The first day is a sacred assembly. Uh, Do no regular work on this day. Uh, For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. 
and on the eighth day hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly, do no regular work. So this was the Feast of Tabernacles that's about to happen in Jerusalem, in John chapter 7. It's a festival you might have gathered from those two references from the Old Testament that was centred around the ingathering of the harvest in September or October. It wasn't the harvest of wheat. That happened at a different time of year. Uh, But this is when they brought all the olives in. Uh, For those who like olives, not a fan myself, but uh, if you're an olive fan, this is the festival for you. And also the grapes. Uh, So this is in September or October. It happened for seven days. And on every day, special food offerings were offered to the Lord, saying, we praise you, God, for giving us this harvest. And in a sense, the whole harvest belongs to you, but we offer this offering to you as a sign of that. Uh, It went for seven days, and on the eighth day, it was closed with a solemn assembly. Uh, masses of Jewish people would flock to Jerusalem for this, uh, uh, for this festival. Uh, it's linked to the time of Israel in the wilderness when they camped in tents. Uh, so people from rural areas would arrive in Jerusalem and they would build these kind of temporary tents or booths. Uh, so sometimes, in fact, your Bible translation might call it the Festival of Booths or the Feast of Booths. It's because they built these temporary booths to live in for the week. In fact, even people in Jerusalem who actually had a house of their own uh, would get up on their flat roof and build a temporary tent to live in for the week. It's a bit like us with our kids. Sometimes they say, can we go camping? We say, well, we'll set up a tent in the bedroom. That'll do for a start, right? And so that's what, that's what this was like. Masses of people flocking to Jerusalem uh, for the Festival of Tabernacles. So in that context, check, it out, check out verses 3 and 4. Jesus' brothers say to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea uh, so that your disciples there might see the works that you do. Uh, No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Uh, Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, if you see in verse 5, Jesus' brothers at this point, they're not actually believers yet but they can clearly see that there's something pretty special about what Jesus is doing. He's doing these miraculous, these powerful works that that perhaps they can't explain. And they don't believe in him yet, but they are keen to be Jesus' publicity team. I don't know if anyone here wants to, uh, does work in marketing or you you want to work in marketing, but this is Jesus' publicity team. They're saying to Jesus, if you want to be an influential, A-lister, public figure, then stop doing your miraculous deeds in these backwater regions of Galilee where the people are insignificant and there's hardly anyone here. Like, you may as well be doing it in secret. Get down to the capital in Jerusalem. That's where things are at, especially during the Feast of Tabernacles. Everyone's there. Jesus, you could show yourself to the world, to everybody. That's the pitch in verses 3 and 4. And yet, verse 5, they're not believers. Remember what John said right at the start of his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus came to that which was his own. Jesus even came to his own brothers. And yet his own did not receive him. If Jesus' brothers had received him, if they'd recognised him, if they'd believed in him they would have known that he couldn't care less about being a public figure. 
That's not what he was interested in. What was he interested in? In doing the will of his father. That's what he was interested in. So in verse 6, Jesus says to his brothers first, my time has not yet, uh, sorry, my time is not yet here. The word time there refers to a, a particular moment, a special moment. And Jesus is saying that the time, the, the particular moment for him to go up to the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, actually hasn't come yet. But notice what he says to his brothers, for you, any time will do. Like Jesus' brothers, he says, you guys can show up at the festival whenever you want. What's the difference between Jesus and his brothers? Well, his brothers haven't humbly surrendered to doing the will of their Father in heaven. But Jesus has. So he will only go up to the festival on his Father's timing and his Father's terms. That's what he will do. So Jesus says to his brothers, you guys can show yourselves to the world up at the festival as they've just asked Jesus to do. And notice what, the fate, what will happen when they show themselves to the world. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you. The world can't hate Jesus' brothers because remember, they're not Christians yet. And so in that sense, they belong to the world. And as Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 19, you can look that up, John 15, verse 19. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, if you belonged to the world, right here, if you guys belonged to the world, Jesus is saying, if you hadn't believed in me, if you didn't belong to me, if you belonged to the world, the world would love you. But that's not the case with Jesus. Notice what Jesus says about himself in verse 7. But the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. The world is full of people, Jesus knows, who by and large haven't received him, just like his brothers. They haven't believed in him. In fact, they hate him. Why? Because he's always telling them that they're doing the wrong thing. Not that he's kind of, you know, ungracious about that, but he wants them to understand that their deeds are evil. In particular, that it's a horrible thing to reject him. So he keeps telling them that. And like all of us, we don't like being told when we're doing the wrong thing. So Jesus says, the world hates me. So in verses 8 and 9, Jesus says to his brothers, you guys go up to the festival, you can go whenever you want, but I'm not going right now. My time hasn't yet fully come. Which I think it's important to be clear, Jesus is not saying that he's never going to go up to the festival. That'll be important in verse 10. I think he's just saying that I'll go up to the festival when my father makes clear that it's time for me to go and when my father tells me exactly on which terms I should go. I'm not going to be kind of pushed around by you pressuring me. And that's what happens in verse 10, doesn't it? Jesus goes up to the festival. And it's easy to read this and think, well, Jesus is being deceptive. He's being rude. He's blowing his brothers off. I don't think that's the case at all. Jesus is determined to always do the will of his father. He would only go up to Jerusalem when his father made it clear that it was time for him to go. And notice that he doesn't go up to the festival on the terms that his brothers laid out. Take a look there in verse 10. You remember his brothers said, stop doing stuff in secret and go public at the festival. What does Jesus do? Verse 10, he goes up to the public occasion of the festival 
in secret. But Jesus is not interested in doing what pleases his brothers. He's interested in doing the will of his Father in heaven. Uh, take it in verses 11 to 13, uh, John kind of zooms out and he gives us a glimpse of what's going on at the festival uh, as things kick off in Jerusalem. You look there in verse 11. Uh, John reports uh, that at the festival, the Jewish leaders uh, were watching for Jesus. Uh, actually, it's more that they were seeking for Jesus. That's probably a more accurate word there. They were seeking for Jesus, uh, saying, where is he? And now we know, right, As if you've read John's Gospel, we know they're not seeking for Jesus because, you know, that they want to say hi or you know, want to hear a bit more of his teaching. No, they're seeking for Jesus because they want to kill him. And they're doing this fairly publicly, asking, where is Jesus? Now, the crowds, on the other hand, are secretly speaking about Jesus. They're behind the scenes. If you look in verse 12, some people are really quite curious about Jesus. They're saying he is a good man. While others are suspicious of Jesus, he's a deceiver. He's leading people astray with his teaching. But notice verse 13, right? There, this theme of public and private, secret and making yourself known, it keeps going in verse 13. Right? The crowds are happy to speak about Jesus behind the scenes, but they're not willing to go public with what they think about Jesus because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders. In verses 1 to 13, the key idea is that Jesus publicly shows himself to be the son who always does the will of his father. It does things in the timing that his father says and on the terms that his father says. Uh, in verses 14 to 24, it's all about Jesus' teaching. Right? Jesus publicly shows himself to be the son who delivers the authoritative teaching of his father. So if you look in verse 14, John says it's not until halfway through the festival that Jesus goes up to the temple courts and starts teaching in public. Uh, presumably, he's been laying low in Jerusalem in secret and now his father has said it's time to go. Go up to the temple and show yourself by teaching. So Jesus starts teaching, uh, and uh, we see there in verse 15 that the crowds are amazed. Uh, the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man uh, get such learning without having been taught? Uh, so in Jesus' day, if you wanted to become a, a better Bible teacher, a, a more authoritative teacher, uh, you went to theological college, well, like some people today. You went and sat in the school of a particular Jewish rabbi, and that's how you learnt. It's how you became a better teacher. And the crowds here are amazed but because they know that Jesus has never done that. And yet here he is, able to teach with such incredible wisdom and authority. You see, in Jesus' day, the way that people taught, Jewish teachers typically, they would say something, they would teach something, and then they would substantiate what they said by quoting from a particular Jewish rabbi or a particular Jewish tradition that was accepted. It's kind of like footnoting today. If you're studying at university, you know, you say something in your essay and then you say, I can say this because here is my authoritative source. Like, this person agrees with me, so I must be right. right but Jesus never did that, you see. 
He just stood up and taught without putting any footnotes to Jewish leaders. And so the crowds are like, well, where does this guy get such authority? On the other hand, Jesus doesn't want the people to think that he's just a loose cannon who says whatever he wants. So that's why in verse 16, take a look in verse 16 what Jesus says. He says, my teaching is not my own. Like Jesus' teaching does have an authoritative source, the ultimate authoritative source, not some Jewish rabbi or it's kind of passed down system of Jewish tradition. So Jesus' authoritative source uh, is his father who sent him. That's where his teaching comes from. That's his footnote, if you like, which is a pretty... Decent footnote, isn't it? A pretty uh, authoritative source. Anyway, uh, that's pretty challenging for the crowds, but notice verse 17. Jesus lays it on even thicker. Anyone, who's, um, uh, anyone who chooses to do the will of God uh, will find out whether my teaching really comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Right, notice Jesus is saying, hey, guys, I know that you like hanging out in the temple. You like discussing ideas. You like theology. You like doctrine. Are you like debating which school of Jewish teaching is the one we should accept? But with my teaching, Jesus says, if you want to know if it comes from God, you actually have to do it. You have to commit to doing the will of God. It's a commitment of faith. It's a commitment to live out Jesus' teaching. It's only then, Jesus says, if you look at verse 18, uh, that you'll be able to tell Uh, which people speak on their own and which people speak with God's authority. Look at verse 18. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. Jesus is in the temple courts. uh, There's a whole lot of Jewish leaders there, people who are regularly teaching the Jewish people. And he essentially, it's a pretty scathing critique. He basically says, yes, you guys teach, but you're not really interested in teaching. You're ultimately interested in gathering approval and glory and acclaim for yourself. That's what motivates you. Not Jesus. Notice the rest of verse 18. What is it that motivates Jesus? Not seeking the glory of people, but seeking his father's glory. Simply speaking the words that his father has given him. What does that mean? It means you can know that Jesus will always say what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. That's the mark of a good teacher. Anyone can stand up and gather a crowd by saying what everyone wants to hear. And they'll be very popular. They just won't know the truth. That's not Jesus. Notice verse 19. He is a man of truth in whom there is nothing false. Jesus always speaks the truthful words that come from his Father. In verses 19 to 24, the theme of teaching continues, and Jesus really wants to drill down on this idea. Well, what does it mean to do the will of God? Remember, he said that's the most important thing. So if you look in verse 19, Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? So so what does it mean to do the will of God? Uh, Jesus said that's what's most important. 
And he knows that the law of Moses is a concrete expression of God's will. And yet he says here, you guys aren't doing the will of God because many of you in this crowd have a plot to kill me. And what does the law of Moses say about murder, unjustly killing someone? It says, well, you you shouldn't do that. So Jesus is saying, you guys are not keeping the law. If you look in verse 20, it seems like there are some people in this crowd. Remember, lots of people flock to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. So it seems there are some people here who aren't really kind of on the wavelength that the Jewish leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. So they think Jesus is nuts. Right, he's losing his mind. Uh, what are you saying? There's people here who are trying to kill you. You're just paranoid. Right, but in verse 21, Jesus makes it clear that he's fully in his right mind. I did one miracle, Jesus says, and you're amazed. What's this one miracle? It's the miracle from John chapter 5, right? The, the healing of the paralyzed man. And Jesus is, um, knows that many people in this crowd were amazed at that miracle are not so much amazed at his power at performing the miracle, but amazed that he would have the audacity to do it on the Sabbath. But in their mind, that's clearly not doing the will of God. It's clearly breaking God's law. This is the theme. What does it mean to do the will of God? But notice verse 22. It can seem a bit random, but Jesus is pointing here in verse 22 to two different commands, two things that are clearly God's will, they're commanded by God. But what does it mean to do the will of God? So in verse 22, the first command is the command that God gave to the patriarchs, in particular to Abraham. Uh, In Genesis chapter 17, that every Jewish male child should be circumcised on the eighth day after they were born. That's the first command. The second command is the commands that God gave to Moses about the Sabbath, that the Jewish people should do no regular work on the Sabbath day. So in this verse, Jesus is saying, so what happens if a male Jewish child, if the eighth day after a male Jewish child is born, happens to fall on the Sabbath? What does it mean to do the will of God on that day? Do the Jewish priests go about their regular work and circumcise the child on the Sabbath? Do they break the Sabbath? Jesus knows for a fact that that's exactly what they do. They're in the habit of circumcising Jewish children on the Sabbath, doing their regular work on the Sabbath. So in verse 23, Jesus says this is absolute hypocrisy. Here, I break your definition of the Sabbath to heal one man, Jesus says, to completely heal his whole body. And you say, that's not justified. You're so angry that you want to kill me. And yet over here, you're breaking the Sabbath, your own definition of the Sabbath, all the time. And you think it's fine. So who's teaching here, Jesus is saying, is really about doing the will of God. Notice verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. What are you saying to the people? The Jewish leaders, their definition of the Sabbath, it might have the appearance of doing God's will. But actually it's just superficial kind of putting on a mask, superficial hypocrisy. If you really want to do the will of God, to know the will of God, Jesus says, judge his teaching correctly. 
know that his teaching is not his own. He's delivering the authoritative teaching that comes from his Father in heaven. A third, verses 25 to 36, Jesus publicly shows himself to be the Son, the Messiah, God's King, who comes, who's sent from the Father's presence. In verse 25, I reckon you'll see in verse 25 it talks about some people from Jerusalem. So I think these are a kind of subset of the crowd, so maybe sophisticated religious Jerusalemites. Let's call them that. Uh, verse 25, uh, some of these people say, isn't this the man that they're trying to kill, right? So from the, they're from Jerusalem, so unlike the people in verse 20, they know what's going on, right? They've heard the scuttlebutt that the Jewish leaders are wanting to kill Jesus. And, and so they're pretty amazed. Like, how is it that Jesus can be so bold to enter into the very place of these Jewish leaders who are trying to kill him and call their authority into question, That's very bold of Jesus. And verse 26, the leaders aren't saying anything. Why aren't they saying anything? Well, maybe, maybe the Jewish leaders are now convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. But notice verse 27, these people say, well, we know our Bibles, or at least they think they do. They know their Jewish traditions. But Jesus can't be the Messiah, they say, but because we know where he's from. And when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Now, as far as I can tell, this is not in the Bible anywhere, but, but these people were very, very convinced that when the Messiah came, he would be utterly hidden, kind of in complete obscurity, and then he just kind of burst onto the scene to rescue the people of Israel from the Romans. That, that's what they believed. And so they're saying, well, this guy can't be the Messiah because we know that he grew up up in Nazareth. I know Mary, I know Joseph, he can't be the Messiah. And now perhaps Jesus overheard their conversations. So in verse 28, uh, he says, yes, you know, uh, yes, you know me uh, and you know where I'm from. In a superficial sense, you know where I'm from. You know I'm from Nazareth, uh, but you don't really know where I'm from. Notice Jesus continues, I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. This is where the chapter started. Why is Jesus at the festival? Why is he teaching in the temple courts at this time? Well, it's because his father sent him. His father who is true, the one true God. And notice the incredibly offensive thing that Jesus says next. You do not know him. These Jewish people prided themselves. Out of all the peoples on the planet, they were the ones who knew the one true God. Not like all those nations who worship their idols. They knew God. Jesus says, if you don't recognise that I've been sent by the one true God, then you don't know the one true God at all. Verse 29, Jesus knows him because he has been sent by him. He comes from the very presence of his Father. Well, that's just too much for these kind of religious people in Jerusalem. You notice verse 30, they try to seize Jesus. And John says they can't get hold of him. Why? Because 
Jesus' hour hadn't yet come. And I think that the hour, the hour in John's Gospel is almost always the hour of Jesus' suffering and death. It's a little bit different to that his time hadn't come earlier in this chapter. And so Jesus, so God is sovereignly ruling over all things and these people cannot get hold of Jesus no matter how hard they try because it's not yet time for him to suffer and die and return to his father. Now that's what John's saying. And not everyone's upset. Look at it in verse 31. There are some people who are thinking, well, maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. After all, he's doing some pretty incredible miracles. Surely the actual Messiah is not going to be more impressive than Jesus. And it seems in verse 32 that the Jewish leaders based in the temple are starting to get a sense that some people are into Jesus. His popularity is on the rise. And so in verse 32, they issue an official arrest warrant. They get their temple guards, which is like their, their, their kind of temple police force, and they say, go and arrest Jesus. And in verses 33 and 34, it seems that Jesus has heard about this. We don't know if there's a little gap in time there. Uh, but he says to the crowds, I'm only going to be with you for a short time. Right, Jesus can't be seized, verse 30. His hour hasn't come. He's not going to suffer and die yet, but he knows it's not going to be long before he does. It won't be long before his suffering, his death, his return to his father. And so he says that when that hour comes, when that time comes, he's going to be in a place where it won't matter how hard these people search for him, they won't be able to find him. This is the bit where Adam had a little chuckle when he was reading the reading. It's quite funny, isn't it? Verses 35 and 36, the crowds don't get it. Where is it that Jesus is going to go that we won't be able to find him? Like it sort of feels like some kind of comic, kind of, you know, cosmic game of hide and seek or something. Like Jesus is going to be, you know, like they're wondering, is Jesus going to go to teach the Jewish people scattered among the nations? Like what's going on? But you see, the big point in verses 25 to 36 is who is Jesus? And the answer is, Jesus publicly shows himself to be the son who is the Messiah, God's king, who has been sent from the very presence of God, who comes from the very presence of God. And as the one who comes from God's presence, he comes to offer incredible blessings. Verses 37 to 39. Jesus shows himself to be the son who when he is glorified by his Father, will pour abundant life and satisfaction out on all those who come to him in what I've called thirsty faith. Uh, during, uh, on every day of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, there was actually a special water-pouring ceremony. It happened at the same time as those food offerings that uh, we read about in Leviticus 23. Uh, so that the high priest would get a special golden jug and kind of get water out of the pool of Siloam, which we'll hear more about in John chapter 9, but it means the pool of the scent. So we'd get this special water, and then with all the priests, there'd be all sorts of pomp and ceremony, and they'd march into the temple, and the priests would pour out this water. It was a sign to the Jewish people of all the blessings that God was going to pour out when he sent the Messiah. Wonderful blessings that God would pour out. So Jesus has been at the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? He's been in and amongst the crowd. He knows that they have been watching this special water-pouring ceremony every day. 
Uh, So in verse 37, right at the climax of the festival, uh, Jesus stands up and he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Uh, If you weren't with us when we looked at John chapter 4, you might want to read it later on. But as with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, Jesus is not speaking about physical thirst here, although it might have been quite warm and some might have been thirsty. But he's talking about spiritual thirst, isn't he? The deep thirst that each of us have, deep in our hearts, deep in our souls. And Jesus says, if you recognise in your heart, in your life, if you recognise thirsts, that nothing or no one in this world has ever been able to satisfy, then what you need to do is come to him. Come to him. He is the spring of living water. He is the one who's able to satisfy the deepest thirsts of your soul. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, Jesus says. Don't come to a particular set of rules Don't come to a particular set of doctrine. First and foremost, come to Jesus. Drink of him. Believe in him. Notice verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within. This is reiterating Jesus' promise to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Remember Jesus said to the woman, if you come to me and drink of me and believe in me, uh, by the power of my spirit, you will have uh, like a spring of living water inside you that will well up to eternal life. This spring of living water will offer you continual satisfaction It'll offer you eternal satisfaction. It'll offer you abundant satisfaction forever. Because notice verse 39. All those who believe in Jesus, once Jesus returns to his Father and is glorified, uh, will receive the the very presence of God in the Holy Spirit. All through the Old Testament, the the presence of God is symbolised by rivers of water from Genesis chapter 2. And so what's Jesus saying? He's saying, when my spirit comes to live in you who believe in me, you'll have the very life-giving, satisfying, thirst-quenching presence of God inside you, bringing abundant life and satisfaction. So maybe you're kind of joining the dots of the passage. The people in this crowd uh, thought that the water from the pool of Siloam, the pool of the scent, uh, they thought that that water symbolised all the blessings God would pour out when the Messiah comes. What's Jesus saying on the last day of the festival? He's saying, all those blessings have come true in me. God is pouring out all of those blessings because what has he just said in verses 25 to 36? He is the Messiah. The one who has been sent, the ultimate sent one. And so he can offer water, living water by the power of the Spirit, uh, that can offer actual life and satisfaction. Right? Not just water that symbolises life and satisfaction that might be on offer. So how will you respond to how Jesus shows himself in John chapter 7? Uh, Let me suggest four things in relation to the four different sections. Uh, They'll be pretty brief. 
Uh, the first thing is give thanks that Jesus always does the will of his Father. Uh, if you're honest, uh, if, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, uh, you probably recognise that you don't always do the right thing. You don't always live in a way that's in accordance with the perfect uh, kind of pure standards of God. Uh, if you're a Christian, you probably recognise that you don't always do the will of your Father in heaven. I certainly don't. We all fail a lot. And there's a sense in which that's okay. Because it's Jesus who's the perfect son of the Father, not us. It's Jesus who always does the will of his Father. And so instead of, you know, perhaps trying to do our best to be perfect all the time, we can rest and, and give thanks in Jesus. That's he who always does the will of his Father. Second, uh, let's, uh, I encourage you to listen to Jesus, God's Son. We all live our lives in, in a world where there's a real kind of cacophony of voices. I like that word, cacophony. There's just like so many voices around us. Our voices that sometimes consciously, sometimes unintentionally, are they trying to shape how we see ourselves, how we show ourselves to others. And there's not really a way of switching off all those voices, but I am suggesting amp up the volume on Jesus' voice. Why? Because Jesus always speaks the truth. In, whom, in him there is nothing false. Jesus delivers teaching that comes directly from the throne room of God about who you are, about who other people are, about how you can flourish living in God's world. So listen to the voice of Jesus, God's son. Allow his voice to be the dominant voice that shapes how you see yourself, how you see others, how you see life in this world, how you show yourself to others. A third, worship Jesus. Delight in Jesus. Behold the glory of Jesus. For he is the eternal son of God sent from the very presence of the Father. He's not your spiritual life coach to check in with every now and then. He's not just a, a great moral teacher, though he is that. He's not just a prophet bringing wonderful words of wisdom from God. Jesus is the eternal son of God, and if you really get that and behold his glory, uh, then all you can do is fall on the ground and worship him. And fourth... Uh, come to Jesus in thirsty faith and receive the abundant life and satisfaction that he offers. Uh, this is the start of the Christian life and it's how the Christian life continu continues. Christians are thirsty people. We recognise that, that, that there, are, there are certain kind of cravings and desires and thirsts that we have in our hearts, that we have in our souls, that nothing and no one in this world can ever satisfy. Now, of course, we turn to lots of things in this world. We turn away from Jesus. But what I'm saying today is come to Jesus with your thirsts and say, Jesus, please satisfy me. I'm coming. Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. Will you answer that invitation today? Come to Jesus and drink deeply of the living water that he offers. Which is just a picture of knowing him and being filled with his spirit and having the deepest longings of your soul satisfied.
Jesus shows himself in this passage publicly to be the son who always does what pleases his father. Let's pray. Uh, Our gracious father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that this day, by the power of your spirit, uh, that you uh, might have opened our eyes even just a little bit more uh, to see the glory of how your son shows himself, how he reveals himself. Uh, We pray in particular, Father, uh, that we would come to him, uh, that we would humbly acknowledge the thirsts that we experience in our life, uh, and that we would uh, drink deeply of our Lord Jesus and find the abundant life and satisfaction that he offers. Amen.